Hey guys, before we start today's show, I know everyone may be a little down right now because of the COVID-19 pandemic and social distancing, but don't worry because our sponsor for today's episode and friends over at Fruit of the Bean have the perfect pick-me-up for you, coffee. You need to check out Fruit of the Bean Coffee, where right now they're offering all of their coffee at 20% off to help everyone out during this unprecedented time in our country's history. And talk about fresh. This coffee is not roasted until after you purchase it, so you know you're getting a high-quality cup of coffee. Additionally, Fruit of the Bean always gives back 10% of their net proceeds to help orphans and those affected by human trafficking. So in this time of doom and gloom, let's try to do a little good in the world and buy some coffee from Fruit of the Bean. Check them out at fruitofthebean.com. Welcome in, everybody, to episode 29 of the Common Denominators podcast. Thank you for being here with us today. Hope everyone is doing well out there and practicing safe social distancing. Man, a lot has changed since we last recorded. We may sound a little different today, and that's because we are doing our first ever podcast via Skype. So if we sound a little different today, that's why, but we're all here, and hopefully we all have enough toilet paper. Hope everybody out there has enough toilet paper as well. I could use an extra roll, actually, if anybody's got one. <laughs> but uh, we've got Ryan, Adam, and Kyle all here via Skype. All um, on in the studio today. Yeah, remote studio. This is totally different, totally new for the common denominators. But hey, we're going to make it work. We're doing our part to uh, social distance ourselves. So um, unless you've been under a rock for the past couple of weeks, um, obviously the coronavirus is going on. And First, just want to say, you know, thoughts and prayers out there to everybody who's affected by that. You know, we're going to get into a lot of details about COVID-19, the coronavirus, later because we have a very special episode with our guest today, who is a infectious disease physician, Dr. Andrea Greenhines. So you're going to learn a lot about COVID-19 here in a little bit. And uh, we hope this podcast can be somewhat of a distraction uh, from everything going on uh, crazy in the, in the world right now. So... Guys, I guess, uh, I mean, how's everybody handling this pandemic so far? I mean, for me, not much has really changed. Uh, I mean, honestly, I know that sounds kind of funny. I don't want to make light of the situation, but I've been able to work from home every day, and that's been kind of nice. Besides my gym closing, everything's kind of been constant for me. I would have think that would have thrown you completely off the ledge, Lance. I mean, if there's anybody that I loves the gym. I think he's been doing the Rocky Balboa. He's been lifting milk jugs and doing, you know, push-ups off the wall. and That's very, why, uh, that's why he legs. had that second kid, so he can you have two a dumbbell in each hand, right? Not that we would call your children dumbbells, Lance. <laughs> Adam, you travel a lot, so how's it been? You know, obviously you're not doing that for your job right now. How's that been for you? Not traveling a lot these days. Um, yeah. I'm actually kind of a, I'm doing the same thing. I'm working from home, as I know a lot of people are. And uh, our company is not a big work from home type company. And I've really enjoyed it. It's, I've been two weeks at home now, and um, yeah, I can make a habit out of this. There's pros and cons to that. Having two kids in the house all the time. I'm sure most people that are dealing with that know how that is. I won't try to relate, but uh, yeah, that, that's been the challenge. Other than that, I've I've kind of enjoyed it. Is is Julia about ready to kick you out of the house? Yeah, she's probably ready for that. She <laughs> just worked. hit Adam for the first time. It did. <laughs> yes, she, she is ready. She's worked outside a couple times, uh, two or three times this week and last week. So she's getting her share of time away more than I am. But yeah, it's we're making it work. It's hard to complain I about think, 
we should expect a baby boom and also a divorce boom uh, right. after the COVID-19, bro. I'll tell you in all honesty, I mean, we're, we're really fortunate that we both have jobs that allow us not only to work from home, but are both doing well amidst this crisis. Uh, I work for a manufacturing company and we're considered one of the essential companies because we uh, were part of the supply chain and a lot of our customers are, you know, the Amazons, the Walmarts of the world that, that aren't closed either. So we've been really, actually really, really busy. And, and my wife's in the medical field and uh, obviously she's busy too. So we've been really, really blessed and fortunate to have jobs that have allowed us to do that. Yeah. Kind of the same for me. I'm, my industry is essential with the petroleum industry. So my job has, other than not being very many people out on the roads and not many eating choice options for lunch mine hadn't changed much i'm still out on the road every day which i'm by myself a lot so i'm still managing to social distance but but yeah nothing much has changed for me luckily and my wife's a, a nurse as well so hers has been a little bit crazier than everybody's but i don't i'm I yeah, didn't, not not much for us i didn't realize petroleum jelly was an essential what is that an essential to yes i, I think i'll let you use your imagination <laughs> probably not a good idea uh kyle i was uh I was curious, could you, could you pull a few strings and keep uh, gas prices below $2 for us? Yeah, I've been asked several times, what's the deal with that? Has COVID dropped oil prices? But that was kind of actually already in the works before the pandemic broke out. So it's been pretty nice. Yeah, the problem is we got all this gas and we got nowhere to nowhere to go. Yeah. I'm also a little bit disappointed that uh, nobody's made mention of my quarantine beard that I've got going here. I mean, you definitely got beauty. a lumberjack going on. We are uh, or yeah. Skyping via video as well as audio. Got a lot of gray coming in there, Ryan. Yeah. It's like Sean Connery. Yeah. You, <laughs> I was going to say, exactly if, you, if, you put on about if you put on about 100 pounds in eight more months, you got some Santa Claus action going on over there. Got to have goals. I've already, I've already got the laugh, the chuckle to go, go with it. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ryan, how are things on, you know, at your home? Y'all know that I'm a little bit of a prepper uh, by heart. Not a true doomsday prepper, but I, I'm prepared. I've always got extra canned goods. I know some of you guys have made fun of my... Uh, handcrafted uh, tuna and canned chicken rack that I built. Uh, it's in my pantry. How many cans have you, busted, so have, have you busted into the tuna yet? No, I'm waiting for desperate times, Kyle, for that. But uh, right. yeah, it's been fine. I mean, it's just, you know, I think the strangest thing was Kyle and I went on a trip last week uh, for spring break. And it, and it, of course, we were in the mountains of North Georgia. So it, there's no place you'd rather be, you know, during a pandemic away from everyone. But on the way down, we stopped at a gas station and they uh, there was they made us stay outside. They had a limit of how many could go in, and that's the first time it hit me like this. Is, I think one of our other buddies that went down there uh, as well, he got stopped and they gave him a thermal scan before he could pay with cash. Wow, <laughs> they would accept yeah. it. So he could just, just took off. It's, and it's a weird world. Bothered him. Well, speaking of a, a weird world, you know, props to us for putting out an episode about. That was completely themed on March Madness, and uh, March Madness got got canceled, obviously. So apologies for that. We obviously didn't know the world was coming to an end, but this stuff has been pretty crazy, especially the whole toilet paper thing. But me, you know, and I know I kind of got made fun of this for you know doing most of my grocery shopping at Sam's Club. I think Ryan was kind of took a shot at me for that one. But being a Sam's Club shopper, I was already fully stocked on toilet paper, so. I'm I'm good to go. You know where to go paper, now, folks. <laughs> the toilet paper is a flowing over at the Joneses' house. 
He's got but, five uh, pounds of peanut butter and 800 <laughs> rolls of toilet paper. How, so, how much are you uh, selling each roll for? I could use a couple. We'll talk after the podcast, Ryan. I don't I don't talk numbers over the air. So of all the things I told you, know, told you guys, I was a little bit of a prepper. I've got toilet paper. I've got canned goods. i got meat. The one thing I wasn't prepared for was uh, loss of coffee. I'm running pretty low. I don't know about y'all, but I've drank like five times the amount of coffee that I was uh, pre-COVID-19. I mean, that sounds like a problem, Ryan, but um, what you need to do is check out today's sponsor, Fruit of the Bean Coffee. So right now, they are offering all of their coffee at 20% off to help everyone out during this difficult time. And Ryan, this stuff, it's fresh. This coffee is not roasted until after you purchase it. So, you know, it's high quality stuff. And additionally, Fruit of the Bean always gives back 10% of their net proceeds to help orphans and those affected by human trafficking. Coffee with a cause, man. I love it. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And that's what we're all about. So, yeah, Ryan, you need to go check out fruitofthebean.com. Shout out Fruit of the Bean. Thanks for sponsoring today's episode. Good coffee. So we're here with a special guest, Andrea Green Hines, uh, MD. Uh, that's about as sophisticated as I can get. Andrea, can you tell us uh, exactly what MD means and, and uh, what type of medicine that you practice? I think MD stands for medical doctor. I don't want to. Well, oh, hey. I, I don't give it yes. away, Adam. Quit trying it's to show off. Up. Adam. <laughs> make me look bad. <laughs> you are correct. That is what it means. So I am a infectious diseases physician, and so I do both adult and pediatric infectious diseases. So that's my profession. There's a lot of talk about infectious diseases right now, so you're there perfect is. guest yes. at the perfect time with the uh, you know world, <laughs> world coming to an end and all that's happening right now. So yeah, it's an interesting time for sure in our profession. Um, no, typically you know infectious diseases physicians, so we work in just mostly diagnosing and uh, treating infections caused by a variety of different things. So that's bacterial pathogens, viral pathogens, um, fungal pathogens, and parasitic infections. So COVID-19 is obviously a viral infection. You know, uh, I can't even uh, tell people how I got to be an analytics manager. So I I certainly would know how someone (laughs) comes about deciding to be an infectious disease uh, physician. Can you? 12-year-old Ryan didn't dream of being an analytics manager? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't. Andrea, were you walking around with a uh, stethoscope at like the age of three? Was this always your plan? How how did you get to this point? You know what? Yeah, to think back, but I mean, from from a pretty young age, I wanted to be um, a doctor. I found a sixth grade journal many years ago um, that my mom had kept, and, and it had pretty much laid out my plans for being a physician at that time. So, yeah, from a young age, I certainly wanted to be a physician. So when that process gets rolling and you, get, you decide you're going to become a physician and you start school and all that, at what point do you decide yeah. that infectious diseases is your calling? <laughs> Yeah, so that was that was not in my plans. I think the journal that I just spoke about, it, it did include about being a pediatrician. I went into medical school thinking I was going to be kind of a, a family doctor. So then after medical school, so four years of medical school, then you go on to residency. And so my residency was in internal medicine and pediatrics. It's a kind of a hybrid residency called MedPed. So the, at the end of that four-year residency, then you are a board-certified internal medicine doctor and a pediatrician. 
So you sit for two different boards. I was still thinking I was going to go into kind of primary care and take care of the very young and the very old um, in kind of a clinic setting. But about halfway through residency, I realized that I was really drawn to mostly hospitalized patients with infections. And I was very driven in my infectious diseases rotations and just found a passion for it. And so decided then that I was going on to do a fellowship. So after residency, subspecialists then go on to do a fellowship. So that's your cardiologist, your gastroenterologist, um, anybody who has kind of a subspecialty that has to do a fellowship. So then I went on and did a four-year fellowship, two years in adult infectious diseases and two years in pediatric infectious diseases. It sounds like um, you, uh, you and Yeah, Kyle so went... it was a long road. It was a very long road, but very much worth it to, to be able to do what I do today. It sounds like you and Kyle may have a lot in common. He made it, uh, what, one semester in nursing school? Yes. Yes, one <laughs> oh. semester in nursing school, yeah. <laughs> it was anatomy and physiology that blew me up, so yeah, I didn't stand a chance. Yeah, you know, I, so the first 10, 10 weeks of our medical school, and for most medical schools back then, were all anatomy, and I had no anatomy experience uh, in in college, you know, my undergrad studies, and it was torture. It was really hard. So from the time you enroll in, in your first day of college until you're a, a practicing MD, what, what kind of is that timeline like? So it all it depends on what you end up doing. So typically you do a four-year college undergrad. So then you're about 22 when you um, graduate from college and then it's four years of medical school. So you're about 26. And then the minimum time of residency is three years. So like if you're doing pediatrics alone or internal medicine alone or family practice, those are all three year residencies. So I did four years of undergrad, four years of medical school, four years of residency, uh, and then four years of fellowship. So I was 34 before I had a real job. Wow. That's <laughs> my first real job. But I was, you know, you're technically an MD the day you graduate from medical school. So you can technically practice with a license, but everybody these days does a residency. It's pretty, right. you know, you kind of have to to get a job. So glad I didn't hang with what I was trying to do. You're only 13 yeah. and a half years yeah. away from being an MD. Yeah. I've only got, I'll be 55 <laughs> by the time I complete my, my residency. But like so, I said, it's worth it. I love what I do. Uh, so COVID-19, uh, th- we're going to start mm-hmm. asking questions. This is probably where uh, people will realize how much smarter you are than the rest of us. <laughs> we, I think they've already realized that. If they, have, that, if they, listen, haven't, if they haven't gotten the college rundown uh, by now, this will really do it. So I'm going to ask a, <laughs> a really simple question, but I truly don't know the answer. COVID-19, uh, is it considered yeah. an infectious disease? Yes. Yeah, yeah. and, and so, you know, we, we hear of all these diseases that have come you know around throughout the years i mean can you walk us through some other popular infectious diseases and and maybe what other ones have you had experience with over the years it's interesting to hear i think others take on covid and and kind of what infectious diseases are you know you hear about things like covid or sars or mers or ebola you know those are really rare diseases that we don't deal with on a daily basis typically i mean covid we've we've been having to deal with and prepare for, for, for a while here now. 
Um, but on a typical day, I mean, I'm treating anything from a bad skin infection to a bone infection, joint infections, intra-abdominal infections from, you know, a ruptured appendix or bowel to other kind of life-threatening infections like meningitis or tuberculosis, things like that. You know, obviously those aren't the kind that, that hit the news. And so this is probably the most famous disease, infectious diseases that I've been involved with thus far in my career. Ebola, I had a little bit to do with. Uh, we have a biocontainment center here in Omaha, Nebraska, at our medical center where I uh, practice. And so I kind of backfilled some positions for the people, my colleagues that then were directly taking care of those patients. I guess they don't typically think about infectious diseases being as simple as something as a skin infection or even meningitis, but those are all infectious diseases um, that we certainly diagnose and treat much more readily than we do something like COVID. Is this the 19th COVID virus? Is that how, is it just literally numbered as they <laughs> go? No, no. So COVID-19 is, um, it's a coronavirus. So it's in this kind of big family um, called coronaviruses. Coronavirus, we have kind of typically four well-known circulating strains at all times. It's, it's pretty much year round. And they most of the time just cause a common cold. COVID-19, so it's called COVID-19 because it was, uh, it really just came about in 2019. So it, that's where the 19 comes from. Um, it's a novel coronavirus, meaning new. So never, never has been identified before. And so, again, it's in the same family as uh, previously identified coronaviruses. It's just acting different and it has different kind of like pathogenesis. So it, it's just it's acting different than the previously identified coronaviruses. Help me out with something else, because this this is something I just don't understand. Yeah. You hear the stories like on the news of this starting in some fish market or, you know, <laughs> how, how do, yeah. is, is, is that true? And I mean, where do these types yeah. of diseases usually originate and how, why a fish market or why, where animals are? So coronaviruses um, have a lot of animal reservoirs, meaning they infect animals um, that typically don't have many symptoms, if any, of the virus. Uh, and so bats are actually a well-known reservoir of the coronaviruses. And when they enter different hosts, meaning other animals, they then kind of merge or mutate with the viruses that that new host has. So say a snake eats a bat that has a coronavirus, and then the bat virus is able to kind of mutate with a coronavirus that the snake has. And so I think, so when you put a lot of animals in close proximity with each other, like a live animal market, it's a very rich breeding ground for having a new virus. And this isn't a new phenomenon. We've seen this even in the U.S. I can't remember the specifics, but I remember reading a case report of a new strain of influenza. It It was kind of one of the swine flu strains of a person who visited a state fair and, you know, the pigs and developed a respiratory illness, and they identified it as a novel strain that they hadn't seen before. Um, And it was likely a result of being in contact with the pigs at the state fair. So, like I said, you know, a live animal market where there's many different types of animal species 
it's a rich breeding ground to have such a novel virus develop. This is where it seems like it came from, was from this Wuhan live animal market. I truly did not know that. I may be the only one of the denominators who had no clue, but I'm I'm picturing Mm -hmm. it it totally makes sense now. It's almost like nature's laboratory, like (laughs) two different things get mixed together that You know, and there's some theories, too, about, you know, just becoming closer to species that we've not been um, ever close to before with kind of deforestation of jungles and things like that. We're just getting deeper and deeper into forests, and then those animals are getting closer to humans and then unfortunately being brought to these live animal markets as well um, as kind of new exotic species. So that is likely playing a bit of a role as well. So what's different, if anything, about um, COVID-19 compared to other infectious diseases you've worked with? What's, I guess, concerning and, and why it's becoming, why it is such an issue, it's, it's, it's already become an issue. Even though m- most of us, have been infected with other coronaviruses, we don't seem to have any sort of cross immunity um, or any sort of partial protection to this coronavirus. And so it's causing severe disease as a result. And we don't have a vaccine to protect us from becoming infected. And we don't have treatments either. And, And we don't have treatments for many viruses, unfortunately. And so those are being investigated currently. But that is what makes it so different is because most of the time we have treatments for infectious diseases. For some of the the more serious infectious diseases, we have vaccines, which are obviously very important in helping prevent infection. How rare is that to not have any kind of cross immunity? Is that like is this like once in a lifetime thing for an infectious disease doctor? have, Have you seen that before? I mean, we have some cross protection with other viruses, but in terms of, you know, bacteria and things like that, um, we don't have necessarily cross protection because you've been exposed to kind of a similar bacteria. Uh, We certainly rely on our immune systems to help protect us from all sorts of different infections. But, you know, with influenza, we certainly know that we have kind of some partial cross immunity from either previous vaccination or um, natural disease, but that just doesn't seem to be the case with this novel coronavirus. And I think there's just so much to learn about what makes this particular coronavirus unique in that aspect. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you as well is because, of course, reading a lot and hearing a lot that it doesn't seem to uh, affect adolescents as much? Is, it, is that still kind of the case to this point? Is- yeah, so I think in general, I mean, we're we're learning a lot based on the U.S. experience, and, and you may have seen that we've topped the rest of the world's confirmed cases anyway of this. And so I think, again, we have a lot to learn just from our own experiences. We can uh, take what we can from other countries' experiences. Yes, yeah, so I think in general, what What we were being told or early data suggested is that there were certain patient populations at risk for severe disease, and that was kind of older adults and individuals with immunocompromised conditions. So, you know, patients with cancer or HIV or who had underlying health issues, even diabetes um, seemed to be placing people at risk for severe disease. Um, and I think generally that's been kind of the U.S.'s experience thus far. However, it seems that there's 
been a lot of reports coming out too of of kind of younger adults. So um, even individuals in their 40s and 30s experiencing severe disease as well. Um, and I think, again, there's a lot to learn about those cases. I mean, was there maybe even an undiagnosed underlying condition um, or was even something like obesity playing a role? So I think, you know, we again, we have a lot to learn about all of that. But in general, it seems that the high-risk populations for dis- severe disease are older adults and those with um, who are immunocompromised. So I want to circle back to something you said that, that kind of mm-hmm. was a light bulb moment for me. You said there's a, a lack of immunity to it. So is it that th- this disease maybe isn't more contagious and that it's got, it's aggressive. It's more that it maybe it's like the flu. It's just, is more, we're more contagious to it because there's not an immunity. Is that why more people are getting sick at a higher rate? We're, yes. So it seems, yeah. And influenza is very, it's a very serious infection um, and certainly can cause death in people of all ages with intact immune systems and no underlying health conditions. It seems that the coronavirus, yes, our immune systems don't seem to recognize it as having seen its cousin, per se. You know, it it seems like we're experiencing a very severe disease, and we don't completely understand why children in general don't seem to be really getting severe disease, if any disease at all from it. Not saying that they're immune to it, Um, We know that they're infected and that they can pass it on to others, but they have very mild symptoms, if any, and we don't really totally understand why. You know, in general, you know, very young um, infants, newborns, don't have much of an immune system at all and so can get very sick very easily from viruses and bacteria. But again, we don't, they don't seem to be impacted by this virus. Um, and so there's going to be a lot of, there is ongoing investigation to see why, you know, the pediatric population not really being impacted heavily at all from this virus. Um, because they certainly have been exposed to a lot of different viruses, um, as we all have in their life, too. Um, just what, it's just interesting what makes them different. There seems to be a more effect on the, the severity on the male population than the females. I saw that as kind of a trend, but I haven't heard much more about that lately. Does yeah. that still seem to be a case? You know, I, I saw that too, although it seemed to be kind of a headline. And I'll tell you, I probably receive 30 emails a day from different medical organizations about COVID. So I, I have not been able to read every article thoroughly. And certainly there's not been a lot of time yet to do thorough investigations and pool all the data that we're going to eventually have and be able to evaluate. It'll be interesting to see what that data looks like. Um, And it's going to take a lot of collaboration um, between states and how we report our cases. Um, And as you know, I mean, there's many more cases than are being reported just because of our inability to test everyone who has symptoms of COVID. And so it's going to take years to understand who this has impacted. Because if we can't test everyone right now when they're having symptoms, we're hoping that we can test, hopefully in the future, people's antibodies to this uh, particular virus to see who has been 
infected. So again, testing their antibodies to kind of get a better sense of how far this infection has gone to impact the entire population. With all the information coming out, this may seem like a a super simple question, but I think there's so much information overload that I'm going to ask you something that uh, may sound, you know, simple on the surface, but uh, let's say that, you know, I came into your office and I was asking you about COVID and I was curious about the symptoms. I mean, walk mm-hmm. through those, what, what, as of today, because information continues to change, what are mm-hmm. the, the core symptoms sure. and what would you tell me if I had those symptoms? Yeah. So the three biggest symptoms that are being reported right now are fever. Um, and so that's a temperature of 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or higher, um, a dry cough. So you're not going to be necessarily coughing up sputum and then shortness of breath. There's been a variety of other symptoms that have been reported, but those three seem to be kind of the most consistent between all patients. Some other of the the other symptoms are maybe some headaches or throat, uh, fatigue, um, even some diarrhea. But again, the fever, cough, and shortness of breath are the biggest, uh, most commonly reported symptoms. It's recommended that if you have those symptoms, um, that you should really just call your primary care clinic and ask what to do. So it all depends on where you're at and what the testing capabilities are and what the protocols are for your area. Um, Unless you really can't catch your breath because you're so short of breath or you're having severe chest pain. You really shouldn't just show up in your ER because of the concern that you're going to spread it to others. Um, so, so would you call and, your doctor first or go stock up on toilet yeah. paper first? <laughs> you should have already gotten <laughs> your, your toilet doctor. paper. Call your doctor. Don't go anywhere. Don't go anywhere. <laughs> you can order online. Sure. Go for it. No. So call, call your doctor. And there's a lot of resources. I mean, we're kind of resource rich around here, just being kind of the med center area and the biocontainment unit. So there's a lot of resources locally where I'm at. Um, But I think it would be good to know um, before or if you're going to become symptomatic before that time to kind of know what to do, depending on your area, if you were to develop these symptoms, Um, because it doesn't no one any good if you have developed these symptoms and you show up in the ER and you get several other people infected despite precautions that are likely in place in the ER. And so the CDC actually has a CDC website, just a whole wealth of great information um, and, and kind of gives some explicit instructions what to do if you're feeling sick. So again, if the, if the symptoms are mild enough, just stay home and call your doctor and figure out what they want you to do. One of the things I haven't heard answered uh, is what if someone uh, gets the virus, you know, is okay, ends up recovering? Is that something that you can get again? Is is this like the chicken pox or is this like you can get get this again three months later? So that's yet to be figured out, although we think that there's probably some period of immunity so that you won't likely get infected again. I don't know. I don't want to give a time frame because it, it might be different for everyone. Um, but hopefully within kind of a, you know, at least a few months to maybe even a year. But again, time will tell. 
um, based on a lot of investigation to decide if how long natural immunity will last. And hopefully by then we'll have a vaccine in place um, so we don't have to worry about that. In your profession, when does this virus come on your radar? Kind of talk about when kind of reports started coming out of China, when do y'all, when did y'all really start paying attention and say, <laughs> okay, we've, we've got something going on here. We've got to really watch. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I will tell you that there are people in our country who this is their job to constantly survey what's going on in the world in terms of infectious diseases. So I guarantee this was on someone's radar. Um, at the beginning of this year, if not earlier. I think in terms of when we as infectious diseases physicians, kind of the boots on the ground, started feeling the impact was um, probably middle of February, if not before, just started, you know, getting emails. And then really kind of the heavy work started early March. Um, and sort of starting making preparations. We knew it was coming, you know, creating kind of new protocols and algorithms and um, things like that. So, yeah, probably into February, early March is where we really started putting in extra time um, in preparation. And again, people who had this, who are kind of in charge of this kind of surveillance and preparation work on more of a global sense and even national level, we're likely doing a lot of that heavy work in January. So once all this starts ramping up, you know, mm-hmm. are you like, are you trying to work with like other, other facilities, you know, around the U S to see what they know? Are there any other agencies you guys oh, are working with? So like, you know, take us through that process, like as this is really yeah. picking up speed. We all have different roles within infectious diseases. So I don't necessarily have a particular public health role um, or a title or even in epidemiology. So epidemiology is kind of the study of diseases, and that's not just infectious diseases, but diseases as a whole, or even in like infection control for a hospital. So I have many colleagues who do all of that sort of work. And so those individuals who are involved in that have been the ones thus far putting in many, many hours in preparation for this, um, in revising protocols and creating algorithms and um, thinking about how we're allocating our protective equipment supplies and things like that and ventilators. And you can imagine how much um, collaboration and organizational work that requires even within a single hospital. Um, And then besides that, then we have at the med center, we have the biocontainment unit where you may have read about in the papers. This is where the cruise passengers that were infected and exposed all came and were quarantined and some of them were hospitalized and treated. I will take no credit for any of that work. I have many colleagues who were heavily um, involved in all of that. But on kind of the flip side, there's other, you know, we all play a role in different ways. So I, when I wear my pediatric hat, I am kind of in charge of, it's called antimicrobial stewardship at our pediatric hospital. So just making sure that antibiotics are being used appropriately. And so the work surrounding that in regards to COVID has been making sure that we're going to be using 
um, potential therapeutic options appropriately. Um, and so creating kind of pathways that ensures that any potential treatments for COVID are going to be, again, used appropriately. And, and so that, that does require a lot of meetings and collaboration with individuals within our institution. Um, but in, in doing so, we certainly collaborate with other institutions across the country um, via listservs or vir- virtual meetings, um, hearing about their experiences uh, with infected patients, but also with what they're just doing to prepare for these patients as well. So we've kind of gotten the wide view of what we're talking about the virus. Just kind of take us what life for you in your job is kind of before all this hits and, and what yeah. it's like after and what it's like now. So life as an infectious diseases physician right now, I mean, Nebraska, we haven't felt the biggest impact yet. I mean, I think that is certainly yet to come. Um, we're certainly not like New York or Seattle or New Orleans right now. And so it's been just a lot of preparation work, again, as I've, I've talked about. Um, but we've actually been ordered to stay home if unless we have direct patient care. So we all take turns. Um, being on call, so seeing patients in the hospital. And so I'm currently not on call. I will be in about a week and a half uh, on the adult side, um, where I mostly just see patients actually with cancer who have infections. And so again, that's patient population that's at high risk for severe disease with COVID. So I start calling in a week and a half, and I anticipate that kind of the hammer will have dropped here by then. And so my life will be very different than it was today, <laughs> sitting at home, uh, trying to get work done at home. And so I anticipate some pretty long days in the hospital at that time. But again, it, it all depends. So like most of you who um, work outside the home, I don't know what your work situation is currently, but um, even physicians have been have been asked to work from home. So that may sound silly for a doctor to, to, ha- to be able to do that, but in academic medicine, we do other things besides taking care of patients. We are involved in education of medical students and residents and fellows. And um, like I mentioned, I do antimicrobial stewardship. So that's a lot of kind of behind the scenes work um, in creating protocols and uh, clinical pathways and things like that. And we do research otherwise um, as well. Um, And so a lot of that stuff doesn't require me to be at the hospital. And so I'm able to do some of that at home. But if I do need to see a patient, say, in the clinic, um, I've been able to go into the hospital to do that. Otherwise, we've converted our clinics to telehealth. So we're actually trying to see patients uh, via virtual kind of meetings over the Internet, which has been interesting uh, to do. So in terms of the lifespan of this pandemic, it, it sounds like even though we have I think the most reported cases, like I think we passed China now, is what you were saying. Like it almost sounds like we're still not really over the hump yet. Like we're still not like trending positive yet. So have, is the worst of it to come this week, basically? I think in the next couple of weeks, what the models I've seen is actually the day I start call, April 14th, is supposed to be the peak of the, of, uh, the number of cases in the U.S., um, so, yeah, I think, it, it, you know, the number of cases will continue to grow until at least that time. Um, and, you know, as our ability to test more people increases, we're obviously going to see more confirmed cases. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it, those cases weren't there to begin with. And so we knew, you know, when it was like, oh, it first hit 
the U.S. I mean, we had the first confirmed patient that it had been here for a while. Um, that was just the first confirmation. Can you tell us what a ventilator is? Because I'm not sure I know. And why are they yeah. why are they in such demand right now? So a ventilator is the machine um, that essentially breathes for patients or it helps support their breathing uh, at the very minimum. And so COVID-19 causes or can cause a severe pneumonia. And so, you know, patients with severe pneumonias often need a ventilator to make them breathe or support their breathing. Um, And so that's kind of the biggest concern is that uh, in terms of resources is that we may not have enough ventilators in the U.S. to support the number of infected patients that need them. How has this whole thing changed the way going forward? Do you think this is probably setting a lot of precedent for how we prepare for these things and stock up for these things? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think for any future respiratory pandemic like this, we're definitely going to be more prepared. I think my husband even asked me, like, did you ever imagine you would be dealing with this type of issue, you know, pandemic? And I I said, no. I mean, I, uh, I wrote a paper on Ebola my senior year of high school, and uh, I didn't ever imagine that I was going to be involved with an Ebola patient. Um, Like I said, I mean, we had Ebola patients at our medical center in our biocontainment unit um, my first year after fellowship, but this is definitely uncharted territory and something I never fathomed would occur. I think because of that, because there's so much unknown because it is uncharted territory, I would be lying if I said it, it isn't Um, a bit scary because of that unknown, not only from a medical perspective, but just kind of um, the fallout from such a pandemic, you know, how is this going to impact the economy? And we certainly have seen that. Um, How is this going to impact our emotional and mental wellness? I mean, there's a lot more to consider than just kind of the um, medical impact of this pandemic. In terms of being prepared, there are certainly people, as I have mentioned, who this is what they do. A lot of those people are employed in government agencies like the CDC or even in kind of military roles. This is what they do. And I have several of those colleagues who this is all they did. They did biopreparedness in the military Um, and now are my colleagues following retirement from the military. So they're physicians who this is what they did for the military. prepare for something like this. And now they work in a university setting. And so I really rely on those individuals to kind of offer support and guidance through things like this. Um, And I found that that's really helpful. But also just, I think, finding support elsewhere too, just um, even on social media. I mean, social media, as you know, is full of uh, a lot of misinformation and such. But I, I have found a lot of helpful advice on kind of social media platforms like Facebook, just kind of control what you can. I mean, there's a lot about this pandemic that we can't control, but control what you can about your life and making sure that we're all taking um, a bit of our day to kind of unplug from COVID. I mean, that's kind of hard for me to do because this is all I do um, all day. (laughs) I don't really do much other than COVID work during my work day. And in the evenings, my husband obviously wants to talk about it. But I, I really 
try and take the time to talk about something other than COVID or kind of try and focus on something that has nothing to do with how this pandemic has impacted our lives. And and someone has really, um, she's actually a physician in public health within Omaha who has kind of reminded us to take four M's. So every day have some mindfulness, do some meditation, have movement, and have meaningful connection. And so we don't have as good of weather right now as you guys do in Nashville, but we're trying to get outside every day, go for a walk. Um, And during those times, at least, you know, trying to wave to neighbors from a safe distance and doing a lot of FaceTime or Zoom meetings with loved ones to still have that connection. So I have found the days that I I do more of that, I, I feel better about everything overall. And, and feel ready to take on this challenge. I don't want to rub it in your face, Andrea, but uh, it was 82 degrees here today. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it was, it was glorious. It was glorious. <laughs> so like, hot. I mean, it was 50, which is it's a bit balmy for Omaha this time of year, but it's gloomy as all get out. So, no, oh. we need some of that Nashville sun. Send it up our way. <laughs> all those chirping birds and cool breeze. It was really just oh. getting, getting old and irritating. <laughs> yeah kind of have a, a, ran, a random question that's a little puzzling yeah. to me. Do you find yeah. it odd that H1N1 back in 2011 didn't cause the kind of panic, uh, the influenza that I think had a higher death rate, more hospitalizations than COVID-19? Do you, do you find it odd that that one didn't cause the same um, upheaval that this you know, disease has caused? That's a great question. So H1N1 influenza pandemic was in 2009. So this was a novel influenza strain comprised of genes that had not been previously identified in humans or animals to date. And as a result, uh, caused the first influenza pandemic in over 40 years. So although we had a seasonal influenza vaccine at the time, it did not contain the material necessary to protect against H1N1. Um, However, by late uh, 2009, we were able to have a vaccine developed, um, an H1N1 vaccine, and therefore um, offer protection uh, from the virus. Although it takes time to develop vaccines, the platform was already um, prepared for uh, influenza vaccine production because of we already had a seasonal uh, influenza vaccine uh, prepared. Um, it does take time to prepare the vaccines, particularly influenza vaccines. But because of the science uh, behind influenza vaccines was already uh, done um, and we had already gone through clinical trials um, proving efficacy and safety of um, the seasonal vaccine, the process was essentially expedited to get the H1N1 vaccine. So this is in contrast to production of a SARS-CoV-2 or the COVID-19 vaccine because we do not currently have a coronavirus vaccine. Once we knew the genetic makeup or the DNA, the recipe of this uh, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 virus, um, vaccine developers immediately started creating a vaccine. Um, And it's now in phase one clinical trial, so um, looking at the safety and efficacy of the vaccine. However, we're likely not to have this vaccine for 12 to 18 months. So that's one of the big differences between H1N1 influenza 
uh, pandemic and uh, our current COVID-19 pandemic is that we were able to have a vaccine much sooner than we will likely have uh, for COVID-19. Another difference um, between the H1N1 uh, pandemic and our current pandemic is that we had antivirals um, that were effective against um, the H1N1 strain. And so that certainly helped kind of attenuate um, the severity of disease uh, in uh, in a lot of people, as well as helped prevent infection from those uh, who may have been exposed we currently have an antiviral that's uh, under investigation, but time will tell if it's really effective against uh, COVID-19. And then lastly, um, with the H1N1 pandemic, the older population actually didn't seem to be at high risk for a severe disease. And actually a third of people over the age of 60 uh, had antibodies to the 2009 H1N1 influenza strain, uh, likely due to previous exposure to older H1N1 um, strains. And so, you know, that doesn't seem to be the case with COVID-19. Most of us have had a coronavirus infection in the past, uh, but um, we don't seem to have any cross-immunity from those previous exposures. Um, And so that's a big difference uh, compared to uh, what we went through in 2009. However, we think that maybe this is one of the reasons why children don't seem to be as uh, greatly impacted or uh, incurring severe disease uh, from COVID-19 because they've had more, maybe more recent uh, coronavirus infection. I know we have three little ones in daycare and they constantly have a runny nose or a cough. Um, So they're little immune systems are constantly being bombarded with different viruses. And so it may be that they just have kind of, you know, more recent exposure to other coronaviruses and their immune systems are teed up and so are more prepared to combat uh, this coronavirus and as a result not incur uh, severe disease. So just to summarize, uh, the key differences between the 2009 H1N1 pandemic and our current COVID-19 pandemic are really that uh, we were able to have a vaccine for H1N1 uh, fairly quickly um, because of the platform that was already developed for influenza vaccines. Number two, uh, we had antivirals available that helped um, attenuate the severity of disease and impacted uh, the mortality rate as a result. So the mortality rate uh, for H1N1 influenza uh, was about 0.02%, and we're looking at uh, anywhere from a 3 to 4% mortality rate for COVID-19 right now. And then uh, kind of the third uh, big difference is that Older adults seem to have uh, pre-existing immunity to H1N1 um, and don't seem to have that pre-existing immunity uh, to this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. We won't keep you too much longer, but we got a couple more questions we just got to ask. You know, you mentioned uh, we were laughing about warm weather and good weather. So two questions (laughs) about like a cure. One, is it true that this is similar to like a flu where the warm weather might slow down the spread? Um, I'll let you answer that one first, then I'll ask a follow-up. Fact or fiction? So again, we have a lot to learn about this. I hope so, but we can't count on it uh, being the case. 
it's certainly circulating in warm weather areas. And so, you know, New Orleans is having a huge surge of cases and uh, presumably they're having much warmer weather than we are here in Omaha. So, you know, I think there's a lot of things that kind of play into warmer weather as well, besides just the warmer temperature. Um, a lot of kind of those cold and flu viruses, they do like colder temperatures, so they kind of live in your nose, which is one of the coolest parts of your body. But also, colder weather brings us closer together um, in general, you know, in closer quarters. And so it's kind of twofold why we tend to have cold and flu season kind of in the cooler months. Um, we just don't know enough about this novel coronavirus to know if that's going to follow the same pattern or not. Okay. And then my second question, I, I mean, we've mentioned like, you know, I think earlier you mentioned the vaccines. Can you just kind of quickly mm-hmm. walk us through that process? Is it like a, a rat race and there's, you know, 50 different companies trying to find the vaccine right now? Some of them are no. private, some of them are public. How yeah. does that, how does that work? So it's a totally different world. I've, I've not had any involvement with in kind of vaccine development. So I know just kind of the basics of, of how vaccines are developed, but um, there's a lot of basic science behind all of this. So um, there's a lot of people way smarter than myself that this is all they do. Uh, they study virus DNA and figure out their blueprint and how to build a vaccine as a result. And so all of that basic science and knowledge was really in place when this novel coronavirus's DNA was published. Um, and so as soon as that was published, they started creating the vaccine. And so it's actually in what's considered called phase one clinical trials right now. So it's kind of in its initial phases of being tested in humans. So we're past kind of the mouse model test we're in humans. So we have a group of volunteers that have um, received this novel coronavirus vaccine. I believe they're in Seattle, actually. And so following that will be several other phases where they're gathering information about the safety of the vaccine, its efficacy, so how well it's working in protecting these individuals. So a lot of different studies. And the hope is that within 12 to 18 months is that we'll have vaccine ready for everyone to receive or um, at least certain patient populations to receive. And so that time cannot come soon enough, I will tell you. So the development of this vaccine and its implementation into clinical trials has been the most rapid vaccine development and implementation yet. And that's just because of the, I think, a lot of the barriers that are involved in vaccine development and deployment have kind of been lifted because of the severe urgency. So something you talked about, I wanted to touch on for a minute. You kind of just mentioned it. It seems like we're on kind of a collision course with the medical profession and the the economist in this country saying, hey, you know, how much longer can we keep this social distancing slash quarantine going? So from your perspective yeah. on the medical side, what it, what is your thoughts on, it's obvious we're heading that direction and I don't think anybody is denying that. And, and I think part of that too, the weather's changing, it's getting warmer, people are wanting to get out. Yeah. Quite frankly, yeah. people want to go back to work as well. So where, where do you kind of fall yeah. on that, that part of the conversation? Uh, it's hard. I mean, ideally, we would continue this for a long time. 
I just don't know how feasible it is, even in terms of mental wellness, right? I think that it's going to be a little give and take and, and kind of, I mean, ideally no one would get infected, right? But we know that that's not possible in our global society um, with people traveling and just, you know, how social we are in general as humans. And so we're trying to really flatten the curve. And I know that's probably not a new term, but trying not to overwhelm the healthcare system with everyone getting sick all at once. And and then everyone that's um, going to get severe disease, getting severe disease all within the same week or even the same month, then there's not enough ventilators for everyone, right? And so then we're having to decide who's going to, to get the resources they need to live. And so I think, you know, as more and more people get infected, we're going to to understand more about when we're going to be able to kind of lessen these recommendations. But I think giving a date is not necessarily maybe the right thing to do, because it might be different depending on where you live. And I know that's kind of a new consideration, but I think there's also some danger in saying, well, in this area, you can do this, in this area, you can't, because I mean, just personally, I'm thinking about people fleeing one area to the next, you know, and then creating kind of havoc in that so-called unaffected area. Yeah, because listen, we, we, we don't need any more people in Nashville, so please don't flee here. We're full. <laughs> no, right? <laughs> no, but I, we've heard that, um, that, you know, Florida is receiving an influx of people from New York and that they're being required to quarantine for 14 days. But, you know, who's going to regulate that? Who's actually going to, to make sure that's being enforced? And so this whole pandemic has really taught me that you can't really predict what's going to happen from day to day. I mean, I really wish I could just know a day where my life can return to normal. But unfortunately, I don't think that I'm going to know that maybe ever. I mean, I think, again, as we learn more and more every day, you know, hopefully we, we have some better sense of what's right to do. But I think just saying giving, you know, throwing a date out there and saying, by this day, we're going to be, be able to go back to normal. I just, I, we're not there yet. We can't, there's no way we can say that for sure. Guys, I don't know if you've got any more questions. Of course, we've taken a lot of your time, but my two new favorite people in the world are Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci. They get up and, and do their yep. part in the, uh, they're, they become rock stars, but, but yep. I, I love a lot of things that they have to say. They seem like they just give the facts. So I guess what I'd like to do is um, let's put Dr. Hines in front of the nation here. Let's put you <laughs> let's put you up under that in front of that podium and just kind of give uh, you give your speech to make the people listening to this podcast and the people of America <laughs> feel better. And if you're in front of that podium, what would you like to say to the country from your perspective? Oh goodness, I think it's important to recognize that certainly you're not alone in this pandemic and you're not alone in your efforts to lessen the impact of this pandemic. And so I would encourage everyone to do their part to try and lessen that impact um, with this social or physical distancing and keeping up the good hand hygiene. But in the meantime, recognizing that it is hard, acknowledging that and, and talking about that with others and, and really watching out for yourself and others, reaching out to others, keeping those connections because that's what's going to get us all through this. And that's, I mean, they're going to be there when this is all over and this will be over. Um, we're going to get through this. 
but just make sure that we recognize that it is hard and that we need to take care of each other, even if um, we can't necessarily do that in the ways that we're used to. That's awesome. <laughs> Guys, anything else you want to add? No, just thank no, you. No, just thank you for your time. Yeah. I was, I'm, I'm a little thank smarter so than I was when we started this interview. I said, I think I'm a little smarter than we started this interview and I oh. appreciate your time. <laughs> Yeah, I feel a lot more. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for taking the time, and best of luck to all, all of your profession, basically, and thanks for what you do for, for the world during all this and the people in your area, because I, I can't imagine what it's like being y'all right now, but, but continue thanks for being on the front line of it. Yeah, thanks. I think a lot of, you know, I would uh, feel guilty of taking much of any credit for being on the front line, certainly right now. I think a lot of credit needs to go to kind of the bedside nurses who are taking care of these infected infected patients, absolutely. Um, and really the frontline physicians and other healthcare providers in the ERs and primary care clinics who are really, really the boots on the ground right now. As an infectious disease specialist, yes, I'll be likely seeing these patients as well, but, you know, we'll likely have limited interaction compared to the individuals who are really taking care of their most basic needs at the bedside. So, truly give many thanks to those people who are who are doing that for these infected patients all right well i've got to kind of close this out here and again we can't thank you enough for for coming on and i'll just kind of wrote up a couple of things just to kind of wrap up our podcast here again we can't uh, we can't thank dr hines enough for coming on with us for completely uneducated lackeys to, to hopefully enlighten our listeners and sure surely enlightened us so uh, I'll just kind of close with to say to say the last few weeks has been unpre- unprecedented is a massive understatement. Um, I know that mm-hmm. everyone listening to this podcast has felt the effects of the coronavirus. Some I'm sure more than others. Regardless, it's been a paradigm shift in lifestyle for all of us. I've managed to find some silver lining in the dark clouds of COVID-19. My family has drawn a little closer in the last couple of weeks, and uh, we found a new love for puzzles and coloring and Play-Doh and board mm-hmm. games and royal rumble wrestling matches on the king size bed so when the time comes in the future to reflect back i'll have mixed emotions about this pandemic i will have the sadness for the loss of life the fear the anxiety and the reflection of the uncertainty we've all faced as a nation and as a world however i'll look back on the extra time that i got to spend with my family as a gift in the midst of the storm kind of in closing we want to thank all the people on the front line of this battle the doctors nurses the researchers caregivers first responders, supply chain workers, and all the people out there that continue to do their jobs to keep us moving, keep us safe. A heartfelt thank you from all the denominators, and I'll close you uh, with this. The greatest thing we can do in a time like this is love your fellow man and take care of each other. Matthew 25, 40 says, The king will answer them. I can guarantee this truth. Whatever you did for, for one of my brothers or sisters, no matter how unimportant they seemed, you did it for me. So stay safe out there. We'll come back strong. And again, thank you so much, Dr. Hines, for being on. And uh, we truly love all you guys out there, and we love what we do. And we'll talk to you next time. Thank you so much again. Thank you. That's going to do it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. The denominators are Ryan Smith, Kyle Binkley, Lance Jones, and me, Adam Ray. Thanks to Chet Roberts for providing our music. If you like what you heard, please hit that subscribe button and tell a friend. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at CommonPod. That's C-O-M-M-E-N-P-O-D. 
And if you have a question or a comment for our group, or you'd like to submit an idea for a future podcast, please email us at commondenominators at gmail.com. That's C-O-M-M-E-N denominators at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.